Hello, and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 291. I have the wonderful Dr. Nicole Birkins joining me on the show today. What an absolute pocket rocket of a human she is. She is educated with advanced degrees in psychology, education, and nutrition. Uh, Nicole is very much a leading holistic child psychologist. She practices both clinically and works towards helping people worldwide through her generous online social community. And she has dedicated 25 years of her career to providing parents with research-based strategies that get to the root of children's attention, anxiety, mood, and behavior challenges so that they can reach their highest potential. And we recently bonded over the um, debate around uh, trauma, mental illness, and guns in America really trying, both of us were championing the gray area aspects, the nuances, the many reasons, um, for the issues where we live in a world right now where everyone's desperate to simplify things, make them black and white, and that makes different people feel safe about things for different reasons. And unfortunately, uh, the safety and the flexibility uh, of our resilience really comes from embracing grey area, embracing nuanced discussions, realising that we actually have overlaps and we have differences and finding ways to move forward despite those differences focused on overlaps. And I wondered how that could translate to working with children, to raising children, to teaching children what are some of the ways that we can encourage grey area thinking and encourage a feeling of resilience and uh, safety in a world that is complex uh, and full of grey area? So I originally wanted to have her on the show to have a discussion around that and really base our discussion today on that, but also of course, to talk about some of the reasons that kids feel anxious, feel like they can't focus uh, today and why some of those things are happening and talking about working with families and parents and teachers to get to different root causes, to gently move forward, to have a look at food. You know, food is such a big issue. We know that both here and in America, we're talking around 60 to 70% of the average shopping trolley being ultra processed foods. So it's very much, (laughs) we started by saying, yes, let's have a chat about uh, that because 2022, that seems really, really important to dive into. But of course, as every low-tox podcast goes, we developed a much deeper, wider-reaching discussion about all sorts of uh, child-raising discussion topics. So I really hope you enjoy it. 
Uh, it has certainly paved the way for me to invite Nicole back on uh, with the many things that we could talk about in this space that I was already ruminating over as I was uh, discussing things with her and thinking, we could do a whole show on that. Uh, so you let me know what your thoughts are uh, when you share the post, when you share the uh, episode and, and things that resonated for you. I'd love to hear what you'd love for us to talk about next. Uh, I'm going to be joining her on her show to talk about environmental toxins soon as they relate to kids and raising kids. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. I'm going to hook into that show in a little minute. Uh, as you know, this show could not go on as a weekly show without the support of our sponsors, and I always select sponsors that support you. One of the things that I champion the most in all of my talks around avoiding and creating a preventative strategy for mold is owning a dehumidifier or three, depending on the size of your property and your needs, depending on the climate that you also live in, the type of building, how much moisture it's holding. Having dehumidification uh, can avoid things like condensation in the windows. It can keep walls dry when it's raining a lot. Uh, it can stop all of your clothes and leather goods from growing moldy in a period of rain or in a more humid time of year. I cannot recommend them enough. And so many people don't realize that inside their homes, they're experiencing more than 60% humidity. And if that is ongoing for more than just even a couple of days, and you have a lot of dust around, that creates the perfect environment for mold to grow, whether or not you have a water damage issue. So this can affect anyone. And I really am a huge fan. Oz Climate are our major sponsor this year, and they provide you with 10 percent off their already discounted range of amazing dehumidifiers and Winix air purifiers. I have my little air compact Winix that I'm looking at right now that I have in the bedroom. It's the perfect size, very powerful little machine, HEPA filtration, uh, which is fantastic, of course, for keeping uh, virus and bacteria counts down, as well as purifying the air from mold. If you are currently experiencing water damage and you perhaps can't move out yet, uh, great for people with pet allergies as well. So, most people I know, once I've chatted to them, coached them, we identify that having air purification, dehumidification at home is a great idea. And remember, you have 10% off all year round. Your code is LOWTOXLIFE. This month as well, I'm also featuring... Nordic Naturals Arctic Cod Liver Oil. They have two types. So you can get the straight Arctic Cod Liver Oil or given our times and given uh, how rainy this year has been in so many parts of the world through the summer periods where people haven't been getting their vitamin D or maybe vitamin D deficient, you could also get the Nordic Naturals Arctic D Cod Liver Oil that includes a little bit of vitamin D every day in that fish oil supplement. Now, fish oil is one of those things that so many people try to save money on and they just go to their chemist and get the big bulk uh, El Cheapo fish oils. But unfortunately, just as when we're selecting fish or produce of any kind, where it comes from and how it's processed is essential to the overall quality of the product in the end. And unfortunately, because of a lax labeling situation when it comes to supplements, people can bandy about the words purified 
uh, you know, environmentally protective and uh, uh, safe and words like that on supplement bottles without too much uh, recourse or investigation into the truth behind those statements. Uh, But when we look closely at fish oil, especially as a product, this is one of the types of products that you really, if you take a fish oil, you have to know the provenance, where it comes from, how it's processed uh, is everything, especially if you care about the environment and, and fish stocks and making sure that fish stocks are maintained as well as for your own health purposes, if you care about contamination from heavy metals, if you care about freshness and making sure your fish oil hasn't oxidized, if you care about environmental toxins like PCBs and dioxins, you really want to make sure these things aren't in your supplements. So I'm a huge fan of Nordic Naturals because of their extreme commitment to sustainability, but also their commitment to the quality and purity of their fish oil. You really are getting a fantastic dose of EPA and DHA, really nice and high. You can chat to your practitioner about how high you might need to go in terms of what you get uh, each day. If you aren't sure, just take what's on the back of the bottle. That's a good healthy maintenance dose, but anything more would be classified as a, a, a practitioner dose of therapeutic dose. And that's better to be guided by a practitioner on if you go a little bit higher because fish oil works as a blood thinner as well. We really don't want to uh, murky the waters there and do our own experiments if we shouldn't be taking high doses for whatever reason that might be. So Uh, What's on the back is a safe, daily, enjoyable uh, dose. You know, we talk about the olden days when grandmothers used to give uh, our our mums and dads their fish oil to help them stay healthy in the winter. There's a very good reason for that. It works. And uh, I'm a huge fan of the Nordic Naturals brand. You can grab it at your local health shop. You can grab it online and uh, it's available worldwide. So if you've been looking at upping your EPA and DHA, but you want to make sure the environment's looked after and they're not depleting fish stocks and you're getting a really pure heavy metal and dioxin and PCB free product, then I can't recommend it enough. Thank you so much to Nordic Naturals for supporting the show. All right, what a show it is. Uh, Strap in. It's a great conversation. We are talking about uh, polarity, polarization, and how it negatively impacts our children as they grow, as well as talking about some of the more uh, broad-ranging topics uh, in terms of what affects the health of our children and how to act in a preventative way to give our kids the best chance of thriving. Enjoy. Good morning. Good evening, Nicole. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I know it's evening for me. It's morning for you. Oh, That's we right. made it work. We found yeah. the time. <laughs> It's wonderful. Um, We bonded recently while uh, many people were in a heated debate around gun violence. And there were many people saying we don't have a gun violence problem. We have a trauma problem. And um, there's a taco commercial where they have the soft tacos and the hard taco shells. And I was like, ¿Por qué no los dos? And it's like, <laughs> honestly, that's the first thing that comes. I'm a very bipartisan figure, I have to say. I always try and meet in the middle, find overlaps. 
and look at the complexity of a problem rather than try to simplify it and turn it into something really black and white. It's how I was raised. I studied political science. It's kind of uh, morphed into finding these times really quite um, traumatic because we can't seem to meet in the middle much anymore. And I thought it would be really fascinating to talk about the childhood experience of these times and how we look after kids uh, as we raise them to understand that things aren't just black and white and are complex. And if we really want to fix problems, we have to find common ground. Uh, Otherwise, we are the enemy of moving forward. And you never want to be that person um, because... We need to move towards peace and, uh, and and that for me is is really obviously important to many of us listening and we're all trying to figure out how best to do that. However we vote, wherever we live, whatever background we have, I think every human wants to live in a way that makes them feel like they don't have to worry every single night and, um, and gun violence is certainly making a lot of people worry in your country and while it's not an Australian issue, thankfully, uh, it's more the theme, I think, uh, in today. So I, I think for people who might not have come across your incredibly generous Instagram, you are always just sharing so many tips and ideas and ways for parents to navigate the parenting experience uh, with all the things that uh, parenting throws us. How did you come to be a child psychologist? Was it a bit of a calling? Did you start somewhere else? Yeah, it's been a journey. You know, I, I'll say, I think this topic is so important to talk about, especially, you know, you'd focus on uh, how to minimize toxins, live a, a low toxin lifestyle. I would argue both personally and professionally that this issue of um, polarization, extreme polarization, uh, politically, racially, however we look at it, this issue of rampant heightened emotions with dysregulated behavioral responses from adults worldwide. This is actually, I would argue, one of the biggest toxic issues of our lifetime. And it's one of them that people don't think about. We think about the toxin thing as well. Let's make sure we're drinking clean water and we're not, uh, you know, consuming pesticides and people think about toxins that way, but really, and we know because of the brain body connection, what's going on in our mind and our emotions plays such a huge role in our overall toxicity. And I would argue this is one of the biggest toxic burdens we're all dealing with. We're swimming in this toxic emotional stew of just black and white thinking, polarization. Um, And it's really unhealthy as evidenced by how many more children and adults are endorsing symptoms of mental health issues, chronic diseases. So yeah, it just, it struck me as you were you know, talking, I'm like, this is really one of the biggest toxin related issues of our, of our lifetime, I think. And, you know, my journey to the work that I do is very convoluted. I was not one of those people who it's like, oh, I graduated from high school, knew exactly what I was doing and took a straight path to (laughs) what I do now, uh, which is actually good because I do a lot of work with teens and young adults. And I'm like, I'm the walking example of it's okay to not know exactly what you're going to do. Yeah. So yeah, actually my first degree at my first two degrees and career was in education. I started out as a teacher. 
teaching both uh, what we call in the States uh, general education and then also special education, working primarily with uh, children and teenagers with more severe learning, emotional and behavioral disabilities. And um, really loved that work. But what I discovered is I had the parents and the families coming to me and saying, my child's doing well with you in your classroom, like you're doing these great things. I need help. I don't know what to do with my child. I don't know how to help oh, my wow. child. I'm struggling with their behavior. I, you know, who, who's going to help me? And it got me really looking at the total lack of resources for parents, you know, around these things. And it got me passionate about really working more with families from the time when they first had some concerns about their child all the way through, if necessary, the, the process of evaluation and diagnosis and then treatment. And so I went back and got my doctorate in clinical psychology, which was not like just a little, oh, it's an easy thing to do. When you have a degree, at least in the States in education, none of that really applies. It's sort of had to start over mm. um, to do the whole uh, clinical psychology thing. But I, you know, I got my PhD in that and um, went into private practice focused on children, adolescents, and young adults, and particularly kids who fall on what we now uh, understand and talk about as the spectrum of neurodivergence, um, uh, kids who are diagnosed with things like autism and ADHD and, um, you know, those types of things, along with um, kids with more significant emotional and behavioral things, things that we tend to think fall in more of that mental health category, anxiety, depression, suicidality, bipolar, those types of things. Um, and so, really spent, uh, you know, many years doing that. It's still what I do today, although along the way started to see all these commonalities in the patients who were coming in. They were coming in for issues like, you know, the teacher says my kid can't focus in class. Uh, my child's having all these impulsive behaviors. Uh, my, my child is super anxious, whatever it was. And then I take a thorough history and I was finding all of these patterns of physiological symptoms alongside these more uh, developmental and behavioral symptoms, um, chronic ear infections, strep infections, uh, constipation issues, never sleeping well their entire uh, life. Um, you know, all of these things, eczema, asthma, uh, severe picky eating. And I started realizing like this can't be a coincidence that these kids are coming in with these behavioral and developmental symptoms. And yet there's this pattern of this other stuff going on. At the same time, by that point, I was a mom. I, I have four kids. They're older now, 15 to 22, but they were little at the time. And I started noticing some things with two of my own children. Uh, around chronic eczema, some asthma, ear infection issues, and then also some behavioral and just developmental things. So that launched me into really digging into the research around, you know, are there these patterns? And, you know, this may sound ridiculous to many of the people in your community listening. This was probably about 15 years ago now. Um, I was shocked to find that there actually was a body of research literature connecting chronic health issues in children and mental health issues, connecting uh, food and nutrition status and emotional and behavioral and developmental things. We have way more of that now, but th there was an emerging body of literature. And I thought, wait a minute. I, at that point, was well-established in my career, had two master's degrees, a PhD, had been through all of this training, and no one had talked about these connections between the brain and the body 
And so it got me passionate about that. I started playing around with it, going to some seminars, reading, learning more, experimenting with my own kids, starting to implement some of these things, particularly around nutrition and lifestyle with my patients and their families. And that really led me down the path of I, I ended up going back um, and getting a, a master's of science in nutrition and integrative health. I wanted to understand more of the biochemistry and really like just take that further. And so my practice today looks very different than it did, you know, when I first started working with kids and families 25 years ago. It's a very holistic approach. I utilize all the tools from my education and child development training and my psychology training and also my nutrition and functional medicine training to really look at the challenges that kids face, the symptoms that they're having, and, and even that families and parents are having um, through the lens of these symptoms are red flags. What are the underlying issues contributing? Why? I'm much more interested in mm. why. I'm a very strange clinical psychologist in that the diagnosis <laughs> part of it is very uninteresting to me. Yeah. I find we're not, that yeah, really we're, uninteresting. We're not just going to talk. We're going to investigate. Yeah, That's right. It's yeah. like, I, it's actually not helpful. Like, yes, that's what I'm trained as a clinical psychologist to do differential diagnosis, to do assessment, testing, all of this, and like give give you a code and a label, I actually find that really unhelpful because especially when we're talking about the realm of mental health, which is what so many children, adults, and families are dealing with right now, anxiety, depression, suicidality, whatever it may be, uh, in mental health, there is not a one-to-one -one correspondence between a person receiving a label and what we should do for them treatment-wise. And so the, the label is very uninteresting. I'm more excited about and curious about What's going on in this person's body, in this person's brain, in the environment around them, in the culture around them that would cause a three-year-old to have these symptoms, that would cause a 40-year-old mom of three to be functioning in the way she's functioning? And so that's really the approach that we take. It's a very holistic um, you know, approach to really understanding uh, what's happening for people. Um, and and you know, I'm still in private practice. I don't see patients... Uh, full-time anymore. I, I see a handful of my own patients each week. And most of my time now is spent um, working on teaching and training of professionals, as well as, uh, you know, the general public and doing work with um, companies and nonprofits and initiatives around how we actually need to be understanding and solving these problems. Because especially when we're talking about mental health and children, uh, the solution is not just more therapy sessions and more medications. Um, so those are my passions now. And uh, yeah, that, that's my that's my winding path to, nice. to what I do today. <laughs> well, from one winding path to another, I absolutely did not know what I wanted to do when I left school. And uh, yeah, I think it's um, it's it's comforting to young people when you can reach out and share that with them and they're like wow I'm not abnormal for not knowing exactly what I want to do I mean no. who knows anything at 18 anyway in fact I worry <laughs> about the ones it's it's a red yeah. flag to me when yeah. a teenager or a young adult comes in and they're like yep here's my 15 year plan I know exactly and this is literally it's a red flag to me and I go oh we're dealing with some major anxiety and control issues here because of course you don't know you can't know you can have ideas. You can know yourself as you are at the time. But I think part of what we've done and why we've created a generation of kids who's so stressed out, so anxious, so depressed, so dysregulated is because we have 
sent these messages and had these expectations that you must know you're supposed to know if you don't, it's abnormal. Well, Mm. that's just, it's silly. So Mm. yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, to backtrack to what you were talking about, uh, a couple of things I want to pick up on. One was we are living in an extremely toxic time and it ain't just the fragrance. Uh, So when I created Low Tox Life, it was a blueprint for uh, happier, healthier humans and planet. And that is food, body, home, mind and environment. It's everything. It's not just switch this for that and your life's going to be dandy. And then the other thing that you um, shared about starting to recognize these things in the kids that you were seeing and wanted to find those commonalities. My gosh, Nicole, we see that every day in our community. It's why people are attracted to joining the community and the conversation because, and I actually ask this question in every single one of my talks, who here can remember when you were a kid at school, more than one kid who had an allergy, eczema, psoriasis, hives, dermatitis, And everyone's like, "Uh, I don't remember. Like maybe one or two hands go up. I remember one kid having a dairy allergy. My whole school life, that was it. And then I was like, autism, exactly, epilepsy. Yes, right. right. And so then I say, now let's think of today and our kids. And I'll make it a little bit more uh, difficult. Let's make it a challenge. Think if you can name more than five kids. Uh, in your child's circle or in their class that have asthma, eczema, psoriasis, hives, dermatitis, and then, yes, we could add neurodivergence and all the other things. And all the hands in the room go up. And I'm like, that's only 30 years, guys. This is a big alarm bell. And uh, it's really one of the ways I get buy-in from the sceptical dads that get dragged along or the teenager that gets dragged along. Um, You know, I'm always so thankful they're there because then it's not their nagging um, partner trying to convince them that everything needs to change, but it's the annoying lady at the talk and they can just blame me, the stranger who's long gone. Uh, And uh, and we just need to realise how much has changed in 30 30 odd years. It's devastating. People say to me, I mean, one of the top questions I'm asked when I do interviews or talks is, okay, why is it that so many more children today have issues, whether we're talking about physical health issues, mental health issues, brain-based issues, which the fact that we even differentiate between those makes no sense, but that's still what we do, right? There's medicine and there's mental health, which is silly, but um, you know, why is it that so many kids have these issues? It's like, first of all, there's not one definitive answer to that. But what the research is really clear about is we now are bringing children into a world that is so much more toxic in every way. Yes, environmental toxins. Yes, you know, uh, lower quality food because of toxins, you know, all of these things, but also a toxic world from the standpoint of the pace of life has gotten astronomically faster and is completely incompatible with a child's developing brain and the pace of normal unfolding child development. It's become toxic in terms of our educational environments and the developmentally inappropriate expectations that we have for children. It's become toxic in terms of the stress burden on parents, on families, on communities, on, you know, the public at large. So, Yeah, when you take um, fragile little new humans 
and you put them in an environment that bombards them with things that their brains and their bodies are not able to handle through no fault of their own, what you're going to get is that whole wide spectrum of responses in the form of problems, whether it's rashes or ear infections or it's divergent development and they end up, you know, with a diagnosis of, uh, you know, autism or something like that. Um, it's going to show up somewhere because we've just created a world that is incompatible with what children need for optimal uh, mental and physical health. Hmm. So let's, can we unpack what some of those key needs are? Yeah. So when we look at the big foundations, uh, what should, what, what do kids actually need that most of them are not getting? falls in several categories. The first we'll start with is food. Uh, they need a nutrient dense diet. They need nutrient density in their food and they're not getting it. They're not getting it for several reasons. Number one is we have shifted even just in two generations from more of a whole foods, you know, way of living and approaching food, uh, processed foods and, and those, you know, high sugar, nasty fat processed things were just, just coming into the mix when, I don't know how old you are, but I would assume when you and I, when, when yeah. I was a kid, right? Yeah. To the point where th this is so interesting to me. I grew up, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money. Um, and I think about how this has shifted now. We, my siblings and I were the odd ones out because my mom would buy things that they could afford. We had the, the natural peanut butter that you had to stir and mix in the oil. We had, you know, the home cooked things we had, you know, they couldn't afford the TV dinners and those types of things. What's so interesting to me is now those things we've flipped in how we prioritize agriculture and food subsidies and everything to where that is what's affordable now is the stuff that my parents could not afford the special thing, you know, the Twinkies and the TV dinners and, you know, the already stirred peanut butter and all of that, that was unaffordable when I was a kid. Now that's what's cheap and what, you know, people who don't have, and it's become expensive to eat healthy, normal, nutrient dense food. And that's just in the time from when I was a kid to now, it's astonishing, but that has huge implications. Because the most recent data shows there was a large-scale study, and this was pre-COVID. They gathered this data in 2018, but the study was just published recently, showing that in the U.S., uh, the average school-age child, so we're talking about, you know, five-year-olds through 18-year-olds, 68% of their food intake on average comes from what we call ultra-processed foods. Yeah. 68 I'm going to tag you in an Instagram that I just shared yeah. last uh, two nights yeah. ago on this exact thing. It's that horrifying. Is not compatible with what children's brains and bodies need for optimal growth and function. Nutrient density is what's needed. The fact is, the majority of their calorie intake is coming from ultra processed foods that do not provide nutrient density. So right there, we have a foundational problem with where we need to shift and focus for our kids to be able to develop and be healthy in the way they should. So food's a big problem. Sleep is a big problem. We have rampant sleep problems. 
children not sleeping, whether it's because of a medical issue like apnea or something like that, or it's environmental uh, issues of not being in good routines or not having quiet environments, whatever it might be, kids aren't sleeping. Their circadian rhythms, their cycles of wake and sleep are so disrupted. Now we can talk about the role of screens and technology that were not a factor in our generation as parents, but are very much a factor in our children's lives now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Gosh, I had a parent say to me the other day when I was talking about, you know, blocking out the blue light and she's like, so what do I do? Because my six-year-old can only go to bed with the iPad and Peppa Pig. Otherwise she won't go to sleep. That's right. That's right. That's what we're dealing with. That's right. And we, and then what we have is rampant numbers of children not getting enough or not getting good quality sleep or both. And that has serious implications for physical and mental health and brain function. So that is a piece that we need to be looking at, uh, to, to support their development. Uh, movement is a big problem. Again, when we look at previous generations, Movement and physical activity was a normal, uh, established part of childhood. We are now raising the most sedentary generation in history, and that was established before COVID even hit. And we have an even bigger problem now. So we have children who absolutely, on a neurological level, require movement to fuel brain development. Children's brains cannot develop normally if they don't have sufficient amounts of physical activity and body movement, and they're not getting that. And so that's a piece that we need to look at that, oh, this is deficient in most kids' lives. You know, the general recommendations are that children should be getting a minimum of 60 minutes of moderate level of physical activity every day. Well, I mean, the data just shows that that is like almost not happening for any kids. And that's very problematic, especially for young kids where literally the brain wires itself up from birth to five. And we could even make an argument beyond that. Literally the way the brain develops connections that are needed for every aspect of thinking and learning and functioning, those connections are driven via movement and physical engagement with the environment. So when I see infants, toddlers, preschoolers passively sitting lying down in front of screens, manipulating only with a swipe on the screen, I think there is no way that child's brain can develop optimally because they're just not getting the movement that supports that. So that's a big issue. And then stress is one of the other big players here of what are we not doing? What are kids not uh, getting? What's getting in the way? What do we need to focus on? Stress. Children are more stressed than ever before. The American Psychological Association does an inventory, sort of a a data collection of stress for youth and adults every year. And as of 2019, what they, the findings show is that preteens and teens in today's world endorse a level of stress and anxiety that middle-aged working men and women endorsed 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So our children today have the same level of stress, anxiety, and stress burden that grown adults in the middle of their life, working, parenting, whatever, had, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. 
Wow. And child's doing, this is not the child's fault. No. And you can see then why we end up losing ground on intelligence and logic and problem solving because they're literally in fight or flight and in a reactive kind of space mentally. That's exactly. That's right. Wow. hormone cascade that goes along with that, that then gets in the way of higher level learning, emotional relationships, uh, physical growth. You know, we, we not have not only uh, a generation now that is having mental health symptoms at rates we've never seen before, but also chronic physical health problems. And we know the role that chronic stress plays in physical health. We're seeing children and teens now with chronic physical ailments and issues that we only used to see in adults. When I started my career 25 years ago, you did not see children with type two diabetes. We didn't see children with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We didn't see children with chronic fatigue, with fibromyalgia, with chronic migraines. We didn't see them. And it's literally been over the course of my career to where now that's becoming more and more the norm. Physical diseases that used to be diseases of middle-aged and older adults we're now seeing in pediatric populations. And then that has implications also for their mental health. So these are the pieces and, and they're not complicated. Like the challenge around all of this is I'm sure you and the people in your community find you know, the, the answers to this, the how do we unwind this, the what we need to do is actually not a big mystery. And many of the things are fairly simple. The problem is they're not easy to implement and do. Simple and easy are different. So it's simple to say, look, guys, the data and the research shows children need nutrient-dense diets. Here's the science around that. Here's what they're not getting. Here's what they need. This helps solve this problem. That's simple to understand. It's not easy to help families make those shifts, to get parents on board, to get parents to change their eating habits, to help people learn to cook, to deal with kids' resistance, right? There's there's obstacles and challenges around the implementation of all of these things, but actually we're pretty clear on what needs to happen. Right, absolutely. I think one of the biggest stresses for parents is still or growing, uh, how do I get my child to eat a variety of food? And how do I prepare this whole food and make it happen in my busy modern life? Exactly right. And, and that's the piece, you know, around stress is chronic levels of high dysfunctional stress in parents and family systems, which then, of course, has an impact on children. Toxic levels of stress in our communities and our culture and societies at large. That's not uniquely a U.S. problem. That's a global problem. And so when we have just rampant levels of stress, more and more expectations to do things faster and faster with fewer supports, that has consequences all the way down the line to our children and to the world that they live in, to what they experience, to the relationships they have with their parents and caregivers, to the relationships they have with their teachers, to the type of education they're receiving, to their experiences with peers. And this is where, you know, these, these high levels of stress that just continue 
feels like day by day, right? At least, I mean, especially what we've seen in the States here over the last several years, but even in the last couple of weeks, these stress levels, it almost is sort of like, you know, wow, it just keeps like, just when you think, well, this, we must be peaking at the level of stress that we can deal with and the number of problems. And then it's like, no, actually we doubled down on it and found a way to increase it yet again. And this is having serious detrimental effects on our youth, uh, whether they're infants or they're 18 year olds. And I think this is really under-recognized that this continual spiral and and increasing level of stress, it's just pouring fuel on a fire that's already been happening for this generation um, in terms of, you know, consequences to their health. So it, it's something we need to look at. Absolutely. And and so, Nicole, you, you alluded to this just earlier. Can we say with certainty that these problems were cropping up way before COVID? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Because we COVID having- has kind of been weaponized as the reason yes. all these problems have happened, but really no. everything really. was on a slow burn uh, and just kind That's of exploded. Right. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that because as someone who's been in the fields of education and mental health, this stuff is not new. You know what COVID did is it shined a big spotlight on it and made people aware of it. But this was going on and the data shows that for over a decade now, we've been seeing exponential increases year over year in children having um, mental health issues, chronic physical health issues. So these problems already were on the rise. COVID just forced people to be more aware of it. Like the whole mental health thing, you know, people say, oh my goodness, now we have 75% of the population that's mentally ill. No, that's actually not true. Uh, What COVID did was created the, the environment in which people were forced to finally face things that they've been able to distract themselves from and maybe ignore. Uh, and, and we're not talking about mental illness, although that's, you know, the term that gets thrown around because it's very, uh, you know, wow, it gets a lot of uh, views and likes and whatever. But what we're talking about is people having a very normal reaction to an abnormal situation. It would be very strange to me if we didn't have a massive number of people in our population, kids and adults, saying that they're way more depressed, anxious, and functionally struggling. Uh, that's, that's normal. We've had quite a series of months and years here. And so these are natural human responses to abnormal situations. It's not that 75% of adults are now mentally ill. No, it's most adults are struggling and having symptoms that bear out the fact that they're having difficulty adapting to all of the abnormal stuff that's happened. And that's really how I look at it with kids too. Kids get labeled with all kinds of things and look at the root. I don't need use whatever label you want. Kids are showing us what it looks like for a human child brain and body to have very normal responses to very abnormal situations, very abnormal food intake, very abnormal stressful things, very abnormal environmental things going on. Uh, And so of course, why would we expect that the majority of them would be functioning? Just fine. Yeah. I mean, it it doesn't make any sense. Mm. 
Absolutely. And so getting those lifestyle things happening, getting better food quality happening. Can I just, before we leave food altogether, um, ask what some of your favourite foods are for developing brains? And maybe we go earlier childhood and teen development, if, if they're different at all in, in your experience. I keep it really simple. Mm. There are people out there who get really in-depth of all the different, look, I work with normal everyday families. I'm raising a normal everyday family. I know the challenges of it. So I keep it simple. And I really help parents focus on a, a handful of things that I think move the needle. And the first is reducing the amount of added sugars because the data is so clear around the toxicity of added sugar burden um, for children's brains and bodies. So if your kid loves a certain type of, you know, fruit gummy or fruit snack, and you look at that label and you're like, wow, these have 11 grams of added sugar per bag. (laughs) Then you go to the store and find an option that's still a fruit gummy or a fruit snack that maybe has five grams of added sugar. That would be a great start. I am not going to say to the vast majority of families, you need to get processed foods out of your kid's diet. You need to make sure, look, I focus on let's make some swaps and let's make some better choices and let's educate our kids around that. So reducing the added sugar burden. For those of you who are wondering for pediatrics, we're wanting to aim for 25 grams or less of added sugar in a day. That sounds like a lot until you realize that most kids reach that at breakfast. So reducing added sugars, hydrating with water. The data shows most children are walking around at least mildly dehydrated. They're getting too many of their empty calories from sports drinks, soda pops, fruit juices, milks, focusing on hydration with water and lots of ways to to do that and to shift in that direction that don't involve power struggles and all of that. Um, And to focus on getting um, protein and produce. Kids need protein, especially if your child is struggling with brain-based issues. Uh, If they've had any diagnosis of a developmental or mental health or learning issue or behavioral issue, Protein is an important focus. Kids get a lot of carbs and unhealthy fats, but protein is actually what fuels the brain um, for those things. So how can we get more proteins in there? And also produce. Doesn't mean we take away. In fact, I'm not a fan. I'm very much, let's push in some healthy things before we start taking everything away. But how can you, if your child eats zero fruits and vegetables right now, How can we get one in there in a way that they can tolerate and that's okay? How can we model that? So it's that, that those are really my approaches. You know, if we talked about best foods for children's developing brains and bodies, well, we're talking about the same things really as for us as adults. We're talking about quality animal protein, seafood because of the omega, you know, three content. We're talking about lots of fruits and veggies. We're talking about whole grains instead of processed grains. We're talking about nuts and seeds, the same, you know, the same stuff. Um, You know, from a mental health standpoint, the big ones uh, in an ideal world, almonds, spinach, salmon, blueberries, sounding familiar, right? It's the things that we all know would be helpful for us to eat. So, um, but, but I think we have to stay real practical. 
Because one of the challenges of working with and dealing with kids is we're also dealing with the entire family system and we're dealing with some things also we don't necessarily have control over, like children go to school. So I just try to help parents think about this in a really balanced, supportive way, because what happens is if we're too rigid and we say, look, can't feed your kid this. This is what they have to eat. Not only do we set up a lot of power struggle, which then increases stress in the home, which almost negates the benefit of eating better. If now everyone's angry and in power struggles all the time, now we've created an additional problem. Um, but, But it also shuts parents down to it. If they feel like this is overwhelming, this is not doable, then they say, I can't, I can't do any of it. And we make no progress. So I really prefer to just help people think about what are some better choices? How can I move towards this? If we are eating out at the McDonald's drive-through five of the seven nights of the week because of our busy schedule and because I don't know how to cook, what can I start with? Can I start with getting a frozen French fry with less bad ingredients in it? And can I learn how to make those in my oven? And then if I master that, can I find a simple recipe and learn how to actually cut up potatoes or some other vegetable and and do that in my oven? Sometimes these are the conversations and these are the starting points. And, And my thing is, let's just do something as opposed to aiming for this idea of this is what you have to be doing. And then 90% of the population of parents shut down to that and go, I can't do that. So they don't do any of it. You know what I mean? Oh, completely. I think one, one of the reasons I named uh, our community and the start of my business low tox life was because no and zero and quitting and all those words are just, they are built into the failure model of shame and guilt and falling off wagons. And, and then, as you say, just completely rejecting the whole thing because it's all too hard. We've got to go from where we are and just be excited about whatever that next step is that we achieve. And that's it. Celebrate. Just stay there for a little minute. And that's then, right. yeah. It builds. Yeah. And, and for kids too, especially mm. if you have a child who's a picky eater or a teen who's real resistant to getting off the couch you know, you have to find a starting point that's workable and where you say, okay, here, we're going to start with a little step. What's the one next step? And that's how you then get the, the cooperation and more of the willingness when you just barrel in there as a parent saying, oh, everything's changing and we're not doing it. You know, good luck. Good luck to you because um, you have to enroll kids at least to a certain extent. There are things we can control for sure. But if you want to get out of power struggle and conflict and all that, you're going to have to find some steps to work yourself there um, and to bring them along, especially if you're raising toddlers or teenagers. That's just, you know. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that we did when my son started going to school in the city, so he goes through on the train and he's everyday experiencing town hall, which is packed, you know, it's kind of like Grand Central Station, like tons of food outlets, all these very exciting flashy lights. And then it's no chance for me to say, no, you're always going to come straight home from school and have my perfect little afternoon tea that I'm laying out for you. It happens sometimes, but it's not going to happen all the time. And so we navigated the food court together. We went, okay, so if everybody's getting an after school snack, what are our options? What are the things that you really like the sound of and will enjoy 
that are going to at least mean that you're looking after yourself for your tennis practice later tonight. And, um, and, you know, we landed on a couple of different things and they're his go-to. So he doesn't look like an alien to his friends that's, you know, bringing his, um, his home-baked whatever. I'll just eat this right. on the side. That is like social uh, leprosy for a teenager. Totally. So I think you have to that's be right. really real about what that's their, right. their right. environment and their sense of belonging needs too. Right. Yeah. And, and recognize at that age, we have to start giving them a little bit more rope to figure this out too. Mm. Uh, Because what we know from the data around um, kids growing up and, and their behavior around eating is when parents tightly control and micromanage everything about their food intake, even with the best intentions of being healthy or whatever, what you end up doing is not raising a child who has an awareness of how different foods impact them, who has had any room to explore that. And the second they get to college or their own apartment or whatever and have freedom, Mm -hmm. they go crazy in the other direction (laughs) because they've never had any experience with exposure or figuring that out themselves. So, So you're better off while they're still home with you under your guidance in those teen years to give them a little leeway, give them some opportunity to learn some things for themselves give them some opportunity to have some control. And it's much easier to do that when you approach it as we're talking about in terms of the big picture and balance and not striving for some kind of perfection all the time. Mm, Which doesn't even exist. Nope. I think all those Oprah guests in the 90s made us chase all yeah, these perfect right. ideals and protocols. They're like, why isn't it working? Right. <laughs> Maybe it's because perfection doesn't exist. Exactly. Exactly. In anything. Mm. Um, okay, so we've talked about uh, food quite a bit. I want to talk about the social and I want to talk about social awareness as kids grow and they start to hear about issues. I'm worried that our polarised parenting generation is going to rub off on our kids and have them growing up even more polarised, uh, you know, having studied how we lead into world war territory, myself at university. I don't love what I'm seeing here. Um, It's really quite unsettling. And how do we feel, um, how do we, how do we recognize uh, unhealthy polarization in ourselves? I think that's actually where it needs to start. Always starts with the adults when we're talking about anything with kids. The first thing we have to look at and analyze is ourselves whether it's wanting our kids to eat a different way or it's wanting our kids to have less stress or to be less reactive and polarized in their views, we have to look at ourselves as adults. What are we modeling? How are we behaving? Uh, That's a real problem right now globally because children are looking at our generation that's running things and reacting to things. We're not being a very positive model on the whole, there are certainly, you know, individual exceptions, many of us who are trying to do that, but on the whole kids look at the world and they go, well, okay. And then we <laughs> expect them to regulate their emotions and behaviors appropriately. Well, we have a rampant problem with adults right now, managing their emotions and behaviors very poorly and in very public ways, social media being a prime example of that. You know, I say social media platforms are where civility goes to die. 
I mean, you, you look at what adults, the way that they are behaving on those platforms, the way that they're engaging in communication and dialogue, the way they're responding to things, the, the information, what, what they're prioritizing. And you go, what hope is there for our kids to learn how to do that in a better way when this is what they're seeing? So you're absolutely right. We have to start with ourselves. And, you know, here's the challenge around all of this. You know, I'll give you, um, I'll give you the psychological sort of summary of yes, why we've gotten to this point. And it really comes down to humans are very uncomfortable with uncertainty. Um, uncertainty is the root of anxiety. We very much are wired to dislike anxiety. We're driven literally in our wiring and our evolution. Anxiety is a warning signal that something is wrong. And so we try to avoid that feeling. We try to control in order to minimize uncertainty so that we feel better in the moment. And so what is driving all of this extreme polarization on any issue Uh, what's driving it politically, what's driving this polarization in our communities on social media is a very real human phenomenon of us being intensely uncomfortable with uncertainty and therefore seeking out ways to create the illusion of certainty for ourselves so that we can feel better. And what is the number one way that human beings can trick ourselves into thinking there's less uncertainty and to feeling more secure is to control. And one of the ways we seek to control is by putting things in very isolated black and white categories. And when we do that, it gives us the illusion that we have control and less certainty. If I can take the entire, I mean, what is the world population now? 7 billion something, whatever it is. Yeah, 7.8, yeah. Entire population of the world and boil it down into very black and white categories of you are either here or you are here on every issue. I can give myself the illusion of greater control, greater security. I know who to trust. I know who not to trust. I know who to listen to. I know who not to listen to. I know who's with me. I know who's against me. We create these categories to create the illusion of control, to minimize our uncertainty and our feelings of anxiety in the moment. Now, it's actually a powerfully helpful strategy in the moment, which is why it's so addictive and why it's so hard to break. Because in the moment, it works. We've all fallen prey to it. We've all done it. In the moment, we can soothe our own disappointment, fear, anxiety, shame, guilt, uh, whatever it is, by giving ourselves that illusion of control. The problem is, in the big picture, it actually doesn't help us. It actually makes us more anxious because Obviously, we really don't have control. The world is full of uncertainty, whether we want to accept that or not. The world is absolutely not black and white on anything. It is a lot of gray. And ultimately, what happens is we keep bumping up against that, and we keep trying to categorize and break down in black and white, and we become more and more rigid and more and more polarized 
the more we're confronted with that. And we actually get more anxious Mm. and more distressed and create more instability. That's exactly. And so the solution to this is that we have to embrace the fact that the world is a sea of gray. There is almost nothing that we encounter moment to moment, day to day in our lives that truly is black and white. It's a sea of gray. People, humans are a sea of gray and we actually can't ever have control over the things we want to fully have control over. We cannot take away uncertainty. And so what we have to do is get more comfortable and more practiced with tolerating uncertainty and all of the uncomfortable feelings that come along with that. Instead of the minute I feel fear or shame or anger about this position that someone has taken on a topic and it flares anger and fear and whatever in me, instead of saying, you know, taking a very black and white stance of, well, you're wrong and I'm right. And we're very reactive to it, which may help us feel better in the moment, but not in the big picture. We have to be able to recognize, wow, that triggered something. Like I am feeling really uncomfortable right now. I'm feeling confused. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling, you know, whatever. Mm, So we're not moving through those tough emotions. Right. We have to be able to tolerate it to notice this is what's happening for me right now. And I need to sit with that and work through that. And it's that tolerance. It's widening our tolerance for distress. It's widening the window of our tolerance for managing and feeling our uncomfortable feelings that ultimately is what shifts us into a mode of being able to operate in all the gray areas of the world in a more productive and regulated way, instead of creating this constant divisiveness and polarization and reactivity. So I hope that makes sense to people. That's really, uh, from my perspective, the psychology of, of what's happening now for us fascinating uh, and uh, so accurate. It's been what I've felt in my gut and to hear it from a professional who's studied as much as you have, Nicole, I'm almost relieved, frankly. Um, What really hit home, given what we were talking about earlier about the stats around children and resilience and anxiety and mental health issues these days, is if we are polarized if we are black and white and if we are avoiding distress and anxiety about uncertainty and differences between people and all that stuff then we are laying a stage are we not for our children to also become those types of thinkers and then when someone breaks up with them for the first time or someone has a fight in the schoolyard it's literally an implosion because they cannot deal because they have been raised in at this desperate attempt for their parents to find certainty and control in the world. That's exactly right. Children can only develop flexibility, resilience, their own window of tolerance for distress based on what they experience and what's modeled for them in the environment around them. So if we want them to be able to do that, we have to look at how we're doing that and how we're talking with them about that and how we're engaging them in that and how we're responding to things that happen with them. How are we helping them to get curious about and understand their own experience of things, even as little kids? 
you know, as opposed to going to more of this black and white, you know, uh, way of approaching it or jumping in and fixing it for them. Uh, we have to, we have opportunities to help them explore that. You know, when, when your young child comes home from school and says they heard, you know, so-and-so say whatever, uh, on the playground, it's an opportunity to engage around how different people think about things and how people are different and the wide range of differences we have in everything from how we look to how we've been raised to our religious and political beliefs to what we think about everything. You know, with little kids, you start those conversations around, yeah, you know, you love bananas. Your friend Joey hates bananas. You know, that's okay. You're both allowed to have your feelings about bananas. Do you still like Joey? Like, is Joey still a good friend? Do you, do you like going on the swings and playing baseball with him? Well, yeah. Oh, so Joey hating bananas doesn't make Joey a bad person. Just like you liking bananas doesn't make you a good person, right? We, so we can start to explore these things for everything from racial and ethnic differences, which by the way, are very important to begin talking about with children at an early age, we now know that that whole realm of thinking that was uh, the old way of doing it, of well, we just don't see color. We don't talk about it. We, no, that was actually the wrong way to go about it. We need to be talking about those differences early on because what that does is it normalizes it for kids. It takes away the fear of it. When you don't talk about something, you inherently make it taboo for your kid because here's what kids do. Even three-year-old, they go, wow, this is something that no one even talks about. It must be a really bad thing. It's so bad or so scary or so whatever that adults won't even talk about it. And so as parents, we look at it through our minds and teachers or whatever, and we say, well, of course we believe everybody's the same. It's all good. Okay, but have you articulated that? Because in a child's mind, you not talking about it means that there's something that's so awful, scary, whatever, that we don't talk about it. So we need to be talking about differences. We need to be talking about with our kids and using examples in the media as they get older, the things they're seeing on social media, you know, around, oh, you saw that. Like, what do you think about that? Okay, so this is how we've talked about it. All right, this is different. What do you think? And helping kids develop critical thinking skills, help them develop their own perspectives and opinions. You know, I, I have certain opinions and perspectives politically and otherwise. That does not mean that all four of my children need to end up having the exact same ways of viewing that. They may, they may not. In fact, as my kids get older and now, you know, into their mid-20s, we have some really interesting and passionate conversations around areas where we differ on some things. I feel like I've done my job that my adult children don't agree with me on everything because here's, here's the thing. If you ever follow someone on social media where you agree with every single thing they post, you are clearly looking at your own profile. If you are reading things where everything you read is aligned with your worldview and your behavior around things, you aren't exposing yourself to what you need to be exposed to, to even understand what the other options are. We've got to be willing to embrace the idea that no two humans align on everything all the time ever. 
and that that actually is okay, even on some big things. You know, I will say living here in the States in the era of Trump and everything else over the last, you know, five, well, five, six years now, it was really a test for, for some of us, you know, myself included, around, you know, finding out some things or, or, or having conversations with some people that I've known for a long time that I, I really, uh, you know, was surprised by some of their stances on things. I mean, it was really an opportunity for me to walk that talk in terms of, can I regulate myself around this? Can I walk the talk of, wow, turns out we really have some very opposite ideas about some things. Can I stay in a space of recognizing that and not agreeing with you on that, but also valuing the other things I know about you and valuing the relationship. Now, sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can't. There isn't a right or wrong. And sometimes we do discover things about people that we set different boundaries around and remove them from our life. And, and that's understandable. But what we've got now is that to the extreme. Where we now, you know, cancel culture and all of these things where the moment there is some discrepancy between what I believed about you and now what you're showing me, or some discrepancy between what I think or feel and what you think or feel. Well, now that is a catastrophe and I have to delete you, block you, never talk to you again, uh, whatever. That's actually really unhealthy and it's teaching our kids to manage their relationships in a way that's unhealthy. And it's actually not teaching them how to think. If we want kids who actually know how to think, who can be successful in their life because they know how to think, then that requires us to teach them how to navigate these gray areas. And that requires that we're willing to practice doing it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and as someone who's a gray area person, I've noticed it's impossible to have discussions now on social media. Um, it's seen as picking a fight if you're just asking for a flesh out on something or a bit more context or detail or flagging something somewhere, you know, a friend shared, you know, I'm all in for this guy for my local elections. I'm like, um, look, I can see how you would be based on that issue. But did you know that this dude, it turns out was fired from the board because of sexual assault, whatever, like, how do you feel about that? And and it's like, well, do you live here? And just dismissed, done, blocked, finished. Exactly. What, what happens here is like, hold on. Like, this is worrying. I, yeah. I had this in a very black and white state that I was super comfy with. You now introduced a gray. I'm feeling uncomfortable with that. Therefore, mm. my response has to be to remove you from this conversation so I can maintain the illusion of this black and white certainty. That's a perfect example of that. Mm. As opposed to going, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Huh? Well, now I'm not sure. Well, now I need to wrestle with that some more. You know, it's that introducing of complexity and gray. And look, I get it. People are stressed like never before. Yeah. And so when we're doing the work of uh, living in and learning to tolerate the gray area, it requires energy. Mm. It, it's going to increase our stress and people just don't have the bandwidth. Yeah. So it's the perfect storm for polarization, basically. Perfect storm. And I think, you know, you know, you, you study political science. I actually, I have a degree, my undergrad degree, uh, one of them in political science. I think I've never like said that on a podcast. It's like, <laughs> the world doesn't know that about me. Yes. I, I, you know, 
<laughs> One of my bachelor's degrees is poli sci. So we know when we look at the history of these kinds of things, there's precedent for this, right? And this has happened before in various ways. We can learn from it and we can say one of the things we need to get better at here, if we're going to, you know, reduce this polarization that ultimately is leading us towards some kind of big, more catastrophic um, you know, event, then that starts with us on a micro individual level, just being aware and saying, okay, as I scroll certain people's social media posts today, can I use that as an opportunity to practice this for myself? To not, to notice what my response is when I'm presented with a view that's very different from my own, to notice the emotions that brings up, to notice what my instinct, my, my reaction is, but then to hold back and say, okay, might I take a different approach to this? Could I allow myself to continue scrolling and think on it for five minutes and then perhaps come back to it? These are little ways that we can start to practice with this and that actually we can model and we can teach our kids to practice and do the same things. Yeah, I love it. I purposefully follow people that um, often upset me uh, to actually, it's like a a mental workout, I, I take it as. Yeah, that's good. well. It's good. It's it, you know what it is. It's a real workout for that muscle of expanding our distress tolerance, and that is a muscle. And many, many, many children today have a very small window of distress tolerance, and so we've got to be doing these things to help expand that for sure. Because you can't function well in the adult world. If you are unable fundamentally to tolerate any amount of distress, the world's full of distress. Humanness is full of distress. And, you know, we have to help them build that muscle for being able to tolerate it and realize it's not a catastrophe. Uh, You know, your boyfriend breaking up with you brings up a lot of intense, uncomfortable emotions. And it's not a catastrophe you can sit with those. You will make it through. There is another side to that. You know, someone on social media uh, leaving a nasty comment, uh, not a catastrophe. Let's look at what it feels to you. Let's work through that. Let's practice getting okay with letting those uncomfortable feelings be there and then coming out on the other side. Um, and, you know, there's no shortage of opportunities to practice that in the world today. I guess that's the silver lining. <laughs> Absolutely. My goodness. Um, Okay. So last question for you, if you could help us develop a bit of a blueprint for practicing in the gray with our kids, what would that look like? Like what are the conversations look like after school or around a current affairs issue? Um, What's a responsible way to take our kids through that, regardless of how we're personally feeling about a topic? Or do, do we even bring that in? We say, I'm feeling like this because of X. Um, how are you feeling about it? Like, so that we're really sharing our thoughts as well. Yeah. And, you know, it varies somewhat depending on the age and developmental stage, but in general, the things that we want to do are number one, be aware of our own behavior around and our own modeling and communication around differences, around opinions, around current events, because children are soaking in a lot, even from a very young age, about the language we use. If we're speaking about people in polarized ways, if we're getting very reactive, they take that in. So 
number one is, is just becoming more aware of our own modeling. What are we saying about these types of topics around our children? What are they seeing in our behavior? If they were to go to our Instagram, which by the way, lots of older kids, lots of kids with moms, what would they see? What do I feel like, am I providing a good model? Would I want them to see the types of comments I'm leaving on other people's things? So it's a check-in with ourselves and saying, first and foremost, we need to model. The second thing I think you raised already is the communication. Too many parents aren't engaging and communicating with their kids around these things at all. And so engaging around questioning and communication. Huh, I read this really interesting article in the paper today. This is what it was about. I wonder what you think about that. And let them go first. Because when we insert our opinion and our perspective first, we've now colored and, you know, influenced. So what do you think about that? Well, what do you think about? These are conversations you can have around the family dinner table or one-on-one in the car or whatever. You know, what do you think about that? Have you experienced that? Have you seen that with kids at your school? Like, what do you think? Huh, here's what came to my mind. And engage in the discussion around it. Certainly, if there are major community you know, uh, world events that are happening, uh, like school shootings, for example. We need to be talking about those things. Not talking about it sends the message that's either not important to us or it's so scary and big that it can't even be talked about, which is really scary for kids. So we need to be talking about those things in developmentally appropriate ways. You know, connecting with our kids around that, wow, you know, I know you probably saw or heard some of that. You know, this this feels this feels like a lot. Like I want to hear about how you're feeling with that. Here's how I'm feeling. You know, yeah, there's people with different perspectives. Kids have lots of questions around that stuff. Whether right now, like here in the states, we're dealing with the questions kids have around why do some people think that everybody should have guns? Why are some people threatening X, Y, or Z? Why can't we be safe in schools? And that those are opportunities to talk about the differences of opinion. And to be clear, it's perfectly okay for kids to know where you stand on that as a parent. That's part of the, the raising of kids, right? To say, well, this is what we believe. This is our stance on it. And there are people who have another stance. I think they're wrong about that. And this is why. However... Lots of people have lots of different opinions, and we can disagree passionately about things and firmly believe that this other person or this party or whatever is wrong about this and actively work to achieve what we think is right. We can do all of that and still value these other people as human beings and separate how we behave with them and towards them from our emotions around whatever the issue is. And we saw that during COVID too. Look, we can have firm disagreement around masking, isolation, vaccines, whatever. And at the end of the day, we can still behave towards one another in appropriate, humane, civil ways. And that conversation, time and time again, and modeling that for kids, that's ultimately what we want to do. I've raised my kids to have very, um, you know, firm opinions on a, a range of topics and to also treat other people 
in respectful, appropriate ways, regardless of our differences. And that's the piece that we're missing. And that's the piece that we need to, as examples come up, as things happen on the playground, as we see things on social media, these are the things to engage our kids around to help them learn how to do this. Yeah. Oh, so good. Thank you so much for just sharing a little window into what that looks like, because I think people are struggling with the passionate polarized feelings they might have in different issues right now, but also knowing probably somewhere in the back of their minds, they don't want that to turn them into a hateful outward person who doesn't know how to get along with anyone anymore, you know, who thinks differently. I think we're ready for that challenge of, of stepping away from that energy and finding, finding our overlaps again. Agreed. And we have mm. to be. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. Well, Nicole, we, we certainly went on a journey over that hour <laughs> uh, in true podcast style. Um, and uh, I, I really feel like this is the start of more conversations down the track. I, I would love to do a show with you on neurodivergence and supporting our kids there. So thank you so much for being a guest today and helping us navigate what has become so complex. It's often easier to ignore, but it's time to stop doing that. Thank you for having me. I love the conversation. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.